0: Coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary.
1: I think we need to be very cautious. Uh, The reasons to leave a congregation can vary dramatically, from matters of conscience to uh, health-related issues to, to all kinds of other things. But we need to remember that there will be s- severe consequences, no matter what, for our congregation.
0: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host of this particular podcast, and it's been a few weeks since I've been able to sit down with a guest and talk about a particular topic of interest to the Christian community at large. I have been on vacation and taking a much-needed break, but we are back now in the full swing of things, as it were. And um, so today, we do have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Pastor Ryan McGraw, and we've had him on the program before to talk about another topic, but we're going to talk with him today about a topic that I don't think gets a lot of discussion, um, mainly because it doesn't happen a whole lot, and when it does happen, it's not widely advertised. So we're going to talk with Pastor McGraw about a subject that I think is of great interest to the church and especially for those who are pursuing a call in the gospel ministry. But more about that in just a minute. As I said, this is a podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. If you are interested in more information about the seminary, what are our distinctives, what kinds of things are we doing here in Greenville, South Carolina, you can visit us at our website, gpts.edu. If you want to catch up on the podcast, learn about who is coming up on the program go back and review and listen to older um, interviews, you can do so at confessingourhope.org. So hopefully you'll take advantage of those particular websites and avail yourselves of them. In addition to that, we do now have a mobile app that you can use and utilize on your iOS device or Android device. I would encourage you to do so. It is free of charge, and we've had a significant amount of downloads thus far for it. And here you can listen to this podcast on the go, as well as other lectures and various audio resources that the seminary produces, including back episodes, back programs, lectures of the Spring Theology Conference that we host each year. So avail yourself of that opportunity. Uh, as I said, it is free, and you can find out more information at confessingyourhope.com. So please utilize that as you are able. Now, As today's broadcast is concerned, we are going to be speaking with Ryan McGraw. He is a graduate of Greenville Seminary with his MDiv and also his THM from Greenville Seminary. He is a pastor, currently ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, and is in a situation that I think some people find themselves in at times in life as a minister in a transitionary state. And how that became and some of the things that go through a minister's mind and decision-making process as it relates to moving from one call to another call. And if you've given it any thought whatsoever, you can immediately realize that there's certain hurdles and maybe landmines in that process. So we're going to talk a little bit about that with him today. So, Ryan, it's great to have you on the program to discuss this particular topic, one that I think doesn't get a lot of conversation
1: for good reason, probably. Thanks, Bill. I'm glad to be here and glad to talk with you.
0: So, Ryan, tell us a little bit. I mentioned already that you were, uh, you're an ordained
1: minister in the PCA, and you are now transitioning to, transitioning to uh, a church in Sunnyvale, Northern California, which is in the OPC. Okay, and
0: what is the timeline as far as that's concerned for you right now? We're talking about you being in transition. What exactly are we talking about?
1: Lord willing, I, I just finished my uh, time in Conway, South Carolina at the end of July and will not transition to Sunnyvale till the end of September.
0: Okay, great. Now, obviously, these kinds of matters, uh, being a pastor of a church, you're already in a situation where you're laboring and ministering with God's people in one area, and suddenly— a situation like this arises where there's an opportunity to, to accept or even consider a call in another church. Uh, what is What are some of the, in a, maybe in a summary way, what are some of the immediate pitfalls, if, if there are pitfalls, and I think there probably are, uh, to a situation such as that for a minister? Um, I, I know in the business world when I was entertaining possibly leaving one company and going to another, while there was a certain aspect a negative aspect to that. It wasn't, it doesn't seem to have the same weight. I mean, business is business. So it's a business decision here. You're dealing with people and a call and lives and, and souls at stake. Um, how does it differ? Maybe?
1: Well, I think ideally and appropriately, there's a different relationship that the pastor has with the congregation. And, um, it's, it's unique in that sense. I think even in a difficult pastoral situation, uh, which mine was not, the pastor will be very attached to the people and the people to the pastor. One sermon that made a, a tremendous um, influence on my own thinking was by Jonathan Edwards on the church's marriage to her sons and to her God. And he talks about the call of the pastor in terms of knitting the hearts of mm-hmm. the people together with the minister, and both of them together with their God. And so it's, it's a very difficult situation, I think a very unique situation, that many family members of ours that uh, are either not Christians or not in the ministry have not understood adequately.
0: Mm. And, and what do you mean by that, as far as family members maybe not understand what what do you hope they would understand?
1: well, I guess the the aspect that 's missing um, in my view is as you use the analogy to the business world, a lot of times a move like that is viewed as either economic, you know moving from one situation to one that's more favorable. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be um, any number of reasons, just wanting to move up in the world, wanting new opportunities, uh, wanting to go to a new place. And I think, by and large, that's unfortunately how many people view the pastorate as well. And the relationship, as I said, is actually quite different, uh, that essentially there is a special bond created between the minister and the congregation that should not be entered into lightly, but also should not be severed lightly either. And so, uh, in that sense, it's, it's very different. We don't really view it in our family as uh, moving up or um, going uh, somewhere else where uh, there's something advantageous to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we feel like, in some sense, we have been directed this way by God's providence and constrained into it, and... Um, That's how we made the decision.
0: What are some of the aspects of even discussing with another church a call, possible call, to be their minister that um, would weigh on your mind as it pertains to the current situation that you're in as far as being a pastor of another church? Certainly, um, there are aspects, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I can think of a few where obviously a certain level of privacy is involved and and we'll talk a little bit about why that is um but what kind of steps did you take when this began to unfold with your current call or your or I shouldn't say your current call but your previous call at at, at your church
1: well the the first thing is before even considering going anywhere else or even the possibility of it I did mention the issue uh, to our elders. In this particular case, it began by a solicitation uh, from the Church in California and uh, brought the issue to them, and we dealt with things privately in the session first. I think that's wise in many respects, because the difficulty is if you feel like you're in a situation where you have to transition and you have to leave one church and go to another, as soon as the information becomes public, it, it has the potential of changing the relationship between the pastor and the congregation. Uh, the people may initially feel betrayed. Uh, they may feel like the minister is abandoning them. Uh, they may disagree with the reasons for which the minister is deciding to transition. Sometimes those concerns can be legitimate. Uh, Other times, they may not be. But I think that all things considered, uh, it was best to keep things with the session initially until the um, likelihood of the transition became more clear. And in addition to that, um, there's no, I should add to that, there's, there's no ideal way of going about uh, doing something like this.
0: Yeah, it's an aspect that you can't, like, there's no 12-step process that says, you know, you can just follow that, and it's applicable to every scenario and situation. And we're certainly talking about your situation, um, but I think there's probably some overlap uh, that would apply to a lot of other situations. For instance, keeping things um, with those men that are charged by God's Word to oversee the Church— and to kind of keep it there until such time as they deem it's time to make this more public. Um, but in addition to that, um, what are you, you mentioned that, that, that if these things were to become public too early in the equation, you mentioned that there could create some, uh, some fundamental problems. And and you mentioned one already that um, they could begin to assume there's other reasons and, and start making up their own reasons for the, for the change. Um, But what are some of the situations that maybe you experienced when it became public, when it was announced and stated? And maybe take us through how you you and your session actually accomplished that for the good of the church. Because I'm sure that was a concern of yours that the church transitioned smoothly
1: um, in this whole process. Well, I think a lot of that will depend in each situation on why the minister is leaving. Um, In this particular case, uh, the reasons were health-related with one of our sons, Mm -hmm. and he was deeply and adversely affected by uh, the environment we were living in, in terms of his health. And after exhausting all of our options, we we really did feel constrained to leave. Um, Given that situation... Not everyone will even understand that aspect, especially if somebody's grown up in a particular area. They've never had health problems. They've never understood um, how anyone could have health problems in that area. Uh, Even then, there's still going to be a difficulty. um, And the wisdom of announcing that later is then the session was able to stand behind me and say, uh, we think that this is a wise decision, a necessary decision. Um, and so I think the fact that the leadership was united and it was done by uh, for a reason that we believe was necessary made a big difference. I believe if, uh, if a pastor comes to his church and he leaves um, really for an insubstantial reason, then the people are going to be upset, and they're going to have a right to, uh, in that sense. When you say an insubstantial reason,
0: um, kind of prompts, I think, as I'm trying to listen to you talk as a listener out there, um, they may be thinking, well, what kind of reasons would qualify as insubstantial? And I realize there's probably a million, but maybe highlight or think about a couple that would stand out maybe in your mind that would be, considered insubstantial.
1: Okay. Um, we really, of course, are getting into the broader question of, mm-hmm. of when do you mm-hmm. move on, when do you leave a church, sure. if if you do so at all. And um, I think we we need to exercise extreme caution when we approach the question. Uh, one thing that I'll return to that I mentioned earlier is we can't treat the ministry in the same way we do the business world. Mm-hmm. Uh, For instance, I'm working on on a Ph.D. project right now, and I'm pursuing this project mostly because I believe that the material would make me a better minister, and the subject matter would be helpful for my pastor, and it has been. Um, But as soon as people hear, well, you're the pastor of a church of under 50 members, you're working on a Ph.D., everybody says, well, you're not going to be here long. Mm. and essentially treating it as though you're going to move on to bigger and better things, as though if somebody has a higher education, if somebody has more gifting than somebody else, uh, is more useful in the Church in, in any particular way, then somehow they deserve to move up in the world. Mm. And that's one thing that we need to avoid with respect to the Church. And And sad to say, I think based upon... How you see people move around in the church, there probably is at least some of that going on sometimes. Uh, people have the mentality that I begin in a small church, maybe as an assistant pastor somewhere, and then work my way up um, and eventually get to a bigger church and a bigger church uh, and that's certainly the the wrong way to approach things and and I would even say is ungodly mm. and we need to we need to recognize that when a minister is called to a local church, he needs to give that local church the best that he has uh, under the blessing of the Lord. Uh, John Owen once said that uh, uh, ministers are not like those in the business world. In the business world, somebody can invest some of their money and hold some of it back, but he said a minister needs to trade with all the talents he's been given. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether that's a small church or a large church, and, and that type of thinking, at least, needs to be completely erased from the minister's mind. Uh, the minister is judged by the Lord for his faithfulness and not by the size of his congregation or his fruitfulness. So you're, you're basically, to maybe summarize a little
0: bit... The, the critical distinction is that in the business world there is sort of this this atmosphere of climbing the corporate ladder and and with all the negatives that come along with that sometimes positives too don't get me wrong, but there are certainly negatives because there's the, the it's really a cutthroat type of life um, at times because there's always somebody ahead of you and uh, that just comes with goes without saying distinguishing that being a minister of the gospel in the church is not climbing the corporate ladder. Um, Serving Mm -hmm. where you're placed, laboring where God has you here with all of your might, with an eye on that and that alone as your primary focus and goal. Right. So then, of course, in those situations, though, and it does happen, and and you've experienced that, others have experienced it as well, where for providential reasons or whatever reason, and we'll talk about the positive aspects here um, your situation certainly was not because of problems originating there. It was because of a clear issue um, that you've already uh, highlighted. But then you have a process here of how to gradually and carefully, pastorally even, unfold this matter so that it, uh, it's done in a God-honoring way with the least amount of collateral damage. Because even in the best of intentions, you can unwield- unnecessarily or even unknowingly hurt one of those that you've been pastoring? And you were at in, um, at Grace Presbyterian for?
1: I was there for seven years. Okay,
0: so a, a strong connection, obviously, has occurred seven years together with that church. So how do you begin to unfold that? I mean, and we'll have to certainly pull on your experience, because that's all we have to go with here. But towards the end of this discussion, I'm going to ask you for maybe more for lack of a better way of expressing a cookie cutter approach, even though it will have to be tailor-made for each situation. But how did you begin to say, what kind of decision-making process did you personally go through as you began to say, here's where I think we're headed, but we're still not sure, but here's the process?
1: Well, um, I think the, the difficulty that, We've had with the whole issue is, is, of course, when the prospect of leaving came up, my wife and myself both had a response of complete revulsion, um, no desire to leave, um, and, and it's not that we think we have the ideal church or the perfect church, no church will be. But we really, um, we really have committed ourselves in a whole-souled way to the people there, and so the first step in that is, of course, prayer. Uh, we began with my wife and I coming together in fervent prayer over our son's situation. Uh, that actually led before uh, that. That began to happen even before I was offered this this situation um, when. I was approached about uh candidating at this particular congregation then again uh, we continued to to keep it in prayer uh, began to seek counsel from others that we trusted initially we sought counsel um, from other older friends in the ministry who are well experienced uh, outside of our congregation We especially valued the counsel of ministers who had been in multiple pastorates and how they went about dealing with things. We found a wide variety of approaches to how to first approach the elders about the issue and see what they think and see if they think this is something we should proceed with, and then how to approach the congregation next. Um, After talking to the elders and, and praying with them, Uh, the general consensus over time was that we didn't want to reveal anything until, as I said earlier, there was something relatively definite. What that meant was um, I started as a potential candidate and then became a full candidate, and then the next step was a congregational vote, and when the congregation in California actually voted, um, that was when the session decided to make things known to our church. Obviously, after that, I'd still have to go through the um, the candidates' committee of the Presbytery there, and then eventually the floor exam. Um, I've been through the candidates' committee now. I'm still waiting for my floor exam in the end of September. Um, but um, But at that stage... The biggest issue seemed to be the call of the congregate call of the congregation, and so we um we waited until that point when we actually announced it publicly um it was it was quite difficult mm-hmm. to present it what uh what I actually ended up doing was I wrote a letter to the congregation explaining our reasons, explaining the process. I had the session read over it and uh, pray over it and give their feedback. And at the end of the day, just because of the personal difficulty involved, we um, we actually had an announcement following the worship service One Lord's Day, and I had one of the ruling elders read the letter to the congregation. And then I was able to um, speak with people in person afterwards. The other thing I should add, though, is I mentioned the aspect of prayer very mm-hmm, frequently. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that that's key. Uh, sometimes we, um, we acknowledge that we need to pray, and we acknowledge that that's an important aspect of our lives in general— but what we don't often realize is all of, the, all of the concerns that can come up with a situation like this, such as how a, a congregation responds, well, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, are we making that a matter of prayer? Are you praying for the congregation's response? Are you praying for the Lord to begin preparing them and working in them before they even know what's going on? And I can say firsthand that I'm amazed at how exactly the Lord has answered that prayer on behalf of our people. It's still been extraordinarily difficult. I feel like we're severing ourselves from people that in in some respects are closer than flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's going to be difficult and heart-wrenching to us and to them. But I can honestly say that the Lord has been faithful beyond measure uh, and working in them and working in us,
0: one of the aspects you mentioned um as you were talking and i and I find this to be um, rather insightful, uh, whether you meant it that way or not um, is is how you in your situation at least you had one of the elders read the letter, and then you said, <clears throat> so that you can make your avail yourself of those to answer questions um, after. Uh, that letter was read. And, and I think the insightful aspect here, the the practical advice help that would go, I think, fit to any situation uh, where a pastor finds himself um, in this particular transitional situation is that you're available to talk with those people and to come alongside them, to help them over the initial reaction, which is in some cases going to be hurt, um, confusion, bewilderment. There, I mean you could uh, place a host of emotional aspects that go right away into it. But you're there to help it heal in a sense those kinds of issues and and maybe talk a little bit about how you did that interacted with the congregation and made yourself available in that way because I think that's a point that maybe would get missed in this discussion. But you're there. You're available. Nothing has changed. I'm still your pastor. I still love you. I still, I'm still. i still very concerned for you, though I am leaving. And I think that's a huge thing to communicate. How did you do that personally?
1: Well, um, you know, in all honesty, I can't say that I, I did anything sp- uh, special or extraordinary other than just live out the relationship we already had with the people. Mm. Um, we we tend to have at least somebody in our home once a week from the congregation. So we did continue that, of course. Um, got together with individual people as as opportunity afforded. At, at that stage, I think the congregation uh, took a lot more initiative with some of those things as well with us because they knew... That we were leaving and wanted to um, maximize the time we could spend together in, in what we had left, but um, there's no there's no good way to minister to people in that situation, and and to be honest, I feel like ministering to our congregation in the process of them knowing that we're leaving, is more difficult than ministering to a family who's just lost a loved one. Mm. Mm. Um, why, why do you say that? Well, in some respects, it's, it's, it's cut and dry. Um, when there's a funeral or, or something like that, and we never know quite how to comfort people adequately, mm-hmm. but we go to the scriptures, we pray with them, we're we're with them. But in this sense, this is more of a slow and painful process of separation. And it's really difficult to compare. Uh, Could it be compared maybe to a situation
0: using what the analogy you have just presented, the illustration— of losing a loved one could it be maybe compared to the, the how a loved uh, how a, a person is feeling when they know their loved one is dying and they're slowly moving in that direction they're tra- they have terminal illness and you know it's coming they're sort of internally prepared for the reality and then it happens there's still grief there's still mourning but the the full-fledged impact of that does is it would not be the same as if it were sudden and unexpected
1: yeah i, I suppose I suppose that would be the case um, in this particular instance as well. I mean, there's just so many factors involved in the pastorate. I mean, if if a minister has a proper relationship to the congregation, then they're not simply going to view him as somebody who does his job week to week, who preaches from the pulpit— um, but almost in an impersonalized way. Um, but there is, as I said, this close bond between pastor and people that um, one comment I've gotten more than just about anything else is that uh, you and your family will be irreplaceable. Mm. And it's not that somebody else couldn't come in and, and preach effectively and minister effectively, but in some sense there's a lot of truth to that. You know, you may have a new situation, you may have a a minister who's even better than the previous minister, but if there's a proper relationship between pastor and people before, there is something that's irreplaceable. You know, just like somebody who loses a spouse eventually may get remarried, Mm -hmm. but that new person hasn't replaced the first spouse, it's a different relationship. Well, on that point, and, and, and this is probably running a little bit of field from the
0: primary point of our discussion, but it does raise a question in my mind. As the outgoing pastor, forgive the way I express that, I don't know how else to explain it. Certainly at some point in time, Lord willing, that church will have another shepherd, another minister, another person standing in the pulpit preaching, and hopefully doing the job that he's there to do with love and concern. What would you... How do you communicate to that to your congregation that you've left about how—or maybe you did this, maybe you didn't do this, but how would you recommend that one communicate to the congregation that they're leaving as anticipating that someday they're going to have a new pastor? For instance, just like the analogy you used with, you know, perhaps something happens and your wife ends up remarrying because something happened to you and, and, and that happens down the road— I mean, what would you want and hope for your wife, or in this sense, in this case, the congregation as they begin to pursue and think about a new pastor?
1: Well, I think one aspect of of actually moving out of town, and in my case, going across the country, is but you're um, still connected by that rainbow. I saw
0: that. I saw that <laughs> cake. <laughs> That's kind of an inside dose of listening to this program. That's kind of an inside thing. If you're not familiar with Facebook or you're not friends with us on Facebook, you don't see these things. But anyway, they did, they did a nice send-off, and there was this beautiful cake made, so I can give some context. And there was a nice rainbow bridge between South Carolina, the state, was on the cake, and then California. And it was really just a touching way of expressing their love and, um, and appreciation for their seven years of ministry. But anyway, I'm sorry. I run a... That was free. I, I promise. I, that cost nobody anything, and it was—actually, I probably should pay people to hear that. But um, anyway, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I mean, I think, I think the transition helps with us not being um, in the immediate area. I mean, uh, just to give an example, sometimes when ministers retire and they stay in their previous congregation, there can be more of a, a tension um, in, in two ways— on the one hand, it could be that they look to the to the old minister instead of the new minister and, and practically still treat him as the pastor instead of the person the Lord has now called to the church. Um, another way is uh, if it could go the other direction, the new minister is much more appreciated than the old minister, uh, then either he feels slighted or the congregation has a certain awkwardness and feeling like, They betrayed his ministry by taking up things uh, that—or emphases that maybe the previous minister didn't have and and that sort of thing. Um, So in that sense, I think it's much easier to actually be leaving a location and being in a different place. And I think that um, in that case, the transition will take time. The Church knows they need a new pastor. They're expecting it. They're planning for it. So that, too— helps the preparation what would you say to a congregation that you're leaving is it, it maybe in a
0: well i don't want to say farewell address that's really not the way best way to express it but it, in this area um you know you know how would you impart pastoral wisdom or counsel to your congregation as you're leaving um what would you say to them about the reality that someday there's going to be another pastor standing up here, someday there's going to be another man who god's going to place here how what kind of advice would you give them in, in that
1: light well in our in our particular situation in the church i haven't necessarily felt the need to address a relationship to the next pastor um, I have Thought and have preached what I thought was appropriate as farewell. Uh, I shouldn't say a farewell address, but farewell addresses in my case. Right, right, sure. Um, I I struggle with how to express myself to the congregation with what was most necessary to leave them with, and in some sense, I really ended up with about four fa- farewell sermons instead of one. And uh, I discovered a few days later that one of the Puritans, I don't remember who, actually preached a series of 12 farewell addresses to his congregation. So apparently I'm not the only one that's had that trouble. But um, two things I would say, and I guess this is more for the sake of of ministers than it is for the sake of the congregation. Mm -hmm. Preaching a farewell address, in my opinion, is a difficult matter. And it's difficult for multiple reasons. One is that as a pastor, pastor will have a tendency to look back at the congregation and see everything that's wrong. Everything he wasn't able to see reformed. Everything that perhaps the people didn't respond as well or as widely to as he had hoped. And the danger is during that last transitional time for the pastor to make a last-ditch effort to all of a sudden change everything in the church he's never seen change. And get on a a certain soapbox on those subjects. And even if what he has to say is true, and even if the concerns are true, it's not a wise thing to do. Because at that stage, if if those things have not been changed— In the past however many years of ministry, the only thing that that last-ditch effort is really going to do is exasperate the congregation, leave them with a sour taste in their mouths, um, probably will make the end of that pastoral ministry bitter Mm -hmm. rather than um, a blessed time with the people. So I don't recommend doing that. On the other side, um, it is a good time for self-evaluation— and for evaluating the congregation. And so the way I tried to do that was, was a balance of things. Um, just to give a couple of examples, one of the last things that I, I preached was the Trinitarian blessing at the end of 2 Corinthians. In God's providence, I happened to be finishing 2 Corinthians, but I really did turn it into a, a direct farewell address to these people. Um, I've had a a specific emphasis on um, what I would call a devotional Trinitarianism. And that fit well with the tone of the ministry that I had given them. And also it was leaving them with a benediction from all three persons in the Godhead, Mm -hmm. literally commending them to the Lord and to the word of His grace, as Mm -hmm. Paul put it. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to that, my last sermon was actually on the subject of self-denial. And I prayed over that much and, uh, and preached on, on the text from Luke 9 relating to the topic. Um, Bill is smiling at me right now because <laughs> he was supposed to come preach in the congregation when I was out of town um, on that very text and found out that that was going to be my farewell sermon. Uh, so yes, Bill, that is true. I
0: can speak no lies. Thankfully, in the <laughs> Lord's providence, he sent me his bulletin uh, lineup sermon lineup for the month. And when I looked down at the week that I was going to be there, the week bef- the week, his last week at his church, he had that same text. Actually, my text was the Mark Parallel, but regardless, it's the same subject. Same subject. And so I knew right then and there that I wasn't able to preach that text. But it's interesting what you said to me when I wrote that back, and, and I think it's of value. The listeners, I think, would be edified by what you said to me when you responded, if you remember what you said. You're going to have to jog my memory. You said you were praying long and hard about what the last sermon should be, and given the fact that I was thinking of preaching that same topic, yeah. and you were
1: led to do that same topic, that was further confirmation that... Yeah, definitely seemed to be confirmation that that was the right thing. And um, what uh, part of the reason why I chose the topic of self-denial is, I think, um, I think... The issue of taking up the cross, denying ourselves, dying daily, following Christ, is something that is largely lacking Mm. in modern Christianity. People uh, rarely have counted the cost of discipleship, Um, the implications of what it means that when we follow Christ, we have in principle already forsaken everything. We've lost our lives in this world, to use Christ's expression. And I think that when we look at modern Christianity, especially in the United States of America, this lack of this principle of self-denial, which, by the way, Christ explains in terms of hearing his words and keeping his words really whatever the cost. The, the absence of that in the modern church or the lack of the, the practical application of it has really emaciated Mm. American Christianity, That's right. and uh, somebody has said recently that if we ever reach the time of persecution, most of the American church would buckle instantly because we compromise every single day in small things. So in some sense, um, I, I wanted to present that not just because it's a general problem, but it was a way of addressing the areas where the congregation still needs to grow without making them feel like I'm beating them over the head with, with particular issues necessarily. I gave specific examples just to make the teaching clear, but um, I also presented it as, as a positive aspect of um, denying ourselves is really, in in the context, doing what Christ did for us. That's right. He gave up His own life. He forsook everything, so to speak, for us, and then turns around the next the next command He gives, is you do the same thing. And so we need to look at that aspect as, as communion with Christ and really the path of blessedness. And I wanted to leave them on that tone. I think realistically, the um, when you look back at the church, regardless of the situation, if the Spirit has been with the pastor at all, even if you see things in the church that need to change, there's going to be a lot of fruit and blessing present as well. Mm. Maybe in a way that you won't see until later. And, and just as somewhat of an aside, I think we, we tend to idealize the past and belittle the present. Yep, yep. We, we look at our present situation, we see everything that's wrong with it, and then no sooner are we out of the situation than we can only remember everything good about it and now how it's better than, than where we are now. And um, immediately think of the end of Ecclesiastes, where uh, the author says, uh, do not look back on former days and right. say they're better than these. You do not inquire wisely concerning such. And so we need to to beware of that um, negative attitude in our present situation, but also the tendency to idealize things in hindsight. Mm -hmm. And so in in some ways, uh, that that positive and negative approach um, in the uh, Sermon on Self-Denial was designed to um, drive them in the direction they're already going, but with greater urgency, with more fervency— with greater love to Christ, and to be more dependent on the Spirit. We're running a little long on time,
0: I, and I know you're trying to take advantage of this week um, studying here at the seminary in the library and, and working on your Ph.D., so I don't want to keep you any longer than we need to. But maybe a, in, as we close this discussion, um, we, we've talked a lot about your unique situation. Um, and I think we've mentioned this already, and, but I want to say it again just, uh, for clarity— that not every situation is going to have its unique aspects to it that can't be cookie-cuttered, as it were. But I think as we wrap this discussion up, I think there are some things that we've touched on already that maybe you can synthesize for us that must be there, no matter what the situation. I, can, I mean, I already know the first one, but you're going to say it anyway. Um, but maybe some others that you would, if, if, if looking back on your experience, maybe things that you wish you had done differently that maybe should have been there regardless or maybe things that you did do that you wish you didn't do um but maybe some synthesized aspects that probably should be a pattern or or maybe a a good example of uh, of what to do or maybe what not to do uh, as a person works through this situation because as i think we've highlighted quite often it is a difficult thing um because it's not a business decision it's a people decision
1: well, and, of course, uh, the first thing is prayer. Right. Um, second thing that I would couple closely with that is seeking God, godly counsel, um, multitude of counselors, their safety, mm. um, especially the leadership of the local church um, to work together on that score. Um, beyond that, I know men that have gone through the process of when they tell the congregation— how they tell the congregation, um, all of those things in in different ways. And I'm not sure there is necessarily an ideal answer, but um, if you follow prayer and uh, seeking of counsel and working with the local leadership in the church, then that will solve most of that. And I think those are the means that the Lord will bless and will use to go forward in the process. The only thing I'll add to that is, is just to um, go go back to my earlier comments and, and just make a general exhortation. Um, if ministers are listening to this, be careful why you choose to leave a congregation. Mm-hmm. Too often we make those sorts of decisions exclusively in terms of our own families, um, of how it affects us in our particular calling. Uh, Sometimes I almost get the impression that men want to um, seek another call because they're bored with their current location. They've been there too long, whatever that means or however you define that. Um, Some problem arises. And when you deal with difficulties and trials, especially when they come from your church that you're pastoring to, uh, a simple question to ask is, who would not want to leave in a situation like that? But that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Right. Um, One older minister always told me that uh, he felt like most ministers did not realize the cost of Reformation in the church. The long-term commitment to God's people— Um, In in my case, I'm actually quite disappointed that I'm having to leave so early. Um, I think we need to be very cautious. Uh, The reasons to leave a congregation can vary dramatically from matters of conscience to uh, health-related issues to, to all kinds of other things. But we need to remember that there will be s- severe consequences, no matter what, for our congregation. Um, I even tell that to church members as they come into membership classes. One of the things that I tell them early on is as you commit in membership to the church, which, which you should commit to a local church and, um, and be there, You're coming into the congregation— joining the membership of the church will irreversibly change this church and these people. Mm -hmm. You will be irreversibly tied to them in some sense, and no one can ever leave a church without some sort of harmful effect on the people. No matter what the circumstances are, even if you have to leave for legitimate reasons, for conscience sake, for health reasons, you cannot just walk away, even as a member, without affecting every other person in that church. Now, I guess if you had a church of 50,000 members or or something like that, nobody would notice, but most of us are in churches of, of 100 people or less, and it makes a big difference. And if it makes a difference for the members at large, it makes a difference for the pastor especially. Mm. That's, great. that's great insight, and and even touches on another subject that
0: those who've listened to me through the years on another podcast know it's a, a particular subject that's near and dear to my heart and causes me great angst, um, and that is, of course, people leaving churches for every reason under the sun. But none of them seem to be very legitimate because of the reasons that were just— Mentioned um, that you don't realize the connection you have with those people. It's it's deeper than your connection you have with your family members. It's 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 a relationship bought by blood and um, not to be entered into lightly, but definitely not left lightly. And those vows of membership mean something. And I and I and I really wish. I mean, if I could say anything about that subject, it, even today, I really wish people in the church would stop thinking so lightly of the church and start thinking more high uh, thinking highly of the church that relational aspect brothers and sisters in christ there is no greater relationship and to just leave a church for whatever reason even if it's legitimate understand there are consequences and uh, i wish we would start thinking more like that um but as was just said how much more so than when the pastor does even if they're for the right reasons um so Keep that in mind. I think that's a good exhortation for all of us, whether member or pastor, to remember that uh, this is Christ's church. We're blessed to be a part of it and blessed to be a part of that community um, that Christ paid for with his life. And um be nice if we'd start thinking that way more about the church in general. And maybe you're doing that. And if you are, may your tribe increase. Preach it. Talk about it. Live it. And if you're not, then repent, because I think that's what needs to happen in this area. But anyway, okay, I'll climb down off my soapbox for the time. I always have one, at least one rant on every episode, so there it was. For those who have listened to me many times in the past, you know that usually shows up at some point. Uh, Pastor McGraw, it's been good. Um, I I know this has been a difficult time. I know know you personally. Um, For those that listen, I've got to know uh, Pastor McGraw uh, quite a bit over the last few months even. Um, I attend his father-in-law's church here in Greenville. And so I uh, know his wife, I know Ryan, uh, and I know his family and extended family a little bit. So I've gotten to know him and I know his integrity. Uh, I know that this was a difficult decision in every respect. And, and, and there's other things that we haven't even talked about and probably wouldn't be appropriate to even discuss. But there's things that um, other aspects that went into this that were difficult. And it is a difficult decision. But I have appreciated your, your transparency and you're, you're being candid and, and forceful, as it were, in some areas. And um, I know this was hard on you and your wife especially. That was one question I didn't really ask, but you kind of answered it anyway. I was going to ask you how your wife factored into this decision, but you did answer that on your own anyway, so I didn't need to ask it. But I have appreciated your time, and I know you're busy, so we'll move along to that. But thank you for being on, and um, I would be remiss if I didn't say this was actually a suggestion of uh, Dr. Piper, who's the president of the seminary. He actually leaned over to me at a Presbytery meeting and said, you know, since Ryan's in town, this might be a good chance for you to sit down and talk about this subject. It may be helpful, and I think it would be if people consider some of the things, even if they take some of the pieces of it and apply it to their situation. um, I think that would be good. Thank you, Bill. Good to be with you today. Great. Thank you. You have been listening to an interview, a discussion of, of sorts with uh, Pastor Ryan McGraw. He's a, gra- a graduate of uh, Greenville Seminary, THM, MDiv, THM, and currently working on his Ph.D. and studies on John Owen. And, and I didn't mention this during the interview, but he always seems to worm a John Owen thing in somewhere along the way. <laughs> and he did that today, no surprise. Um, and, but he's also um, currently a PCA minister, but transitioning to uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, and we'll be ministering in California um, in the days ahead. So we'll pray for his ministry, and I ask that the listeners also do so, as well as they are reminded of such. Coming up on the broadcast... Um I'll be honest with you, I'm just getting back in the saddle, as it were. So I'm not 100% sure who and when. I do have an interview scheduled for next Tuesday on a very interesting topic. Um, but it really won't matter because by the time this is released, that will have already occurred. So if you're listening to to these podcasts in order, then this will be helpful. If you're not, then it won't mean anything anyway. But I'll be talking with a man who wrote a, a, a book about letters that, that Jay Gresham Machen actually wrote when he was serving in the military overseas in Europe. It's going to be a very interesting discussion, and I'm looking forward to that. That's next week on the broadcast. And then later on, just give you some highlights, we have scheduled uh, Dr. Joel Beakey, who will be on to talk about his book on parenting, as well as uh, Dr. Beal. We'll be talking with him about his book on the We Become What We Worship. Very intriguing book. I have about a third of the way through it right now and I look forward to talking with him about that, although I admit right up front that I'm going to feel a little, a little overwhelmed and maybe outgunned, but that's okay. Um, I'll learn a lot, as you will, as you listen to it. So those are some of the highlights. If you want to know more about what's going on, you can visit us at our website, confessingourhope.com, as well as gpts.edu. So until next time, whenever that happens to be. We do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.